You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. look good. You sound good. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. Uh, I am pumped to get to be with you guys as always as we continue our journey for this Advent season where uh, if you're just joining us, what Advent is, it is a time for the Christian church to basically prepare to for the coming of Jesus, to look ahead with hopeful expectation at the first coming of Jesus as a baby in a manger at Christmas uh, to prepare ourselves for his second coming uh, and all the glory and joy therein. And so that's what we're aiming to do as a people is just set our minds and our hearts on Jesus during this season. Because if we're really honest, Christmas can just get clouded with all kinds of other things out there that want to rob or take our minds away from what it's all actually about. And so we're trying to dedicate our time together uh, on Sundays uh, to kind of dive in a little bit more onto all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us uh, for coming into the world to be our Savior. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there. That would be absolutely fantastic. While you're turning there, I want to remind you about something that we have coming up that we're preparing for in January that we just need to go ahead and get ahead of right now, and that is our Serve the City weekend. Uh, Is anybody familiar with our Serve the City weekend? Raise your hands. Yes, excellent. You all should be. For those of you who've been around for a while anyway, you should be. Uh, Serve the City weekend is basically a big weekend that we host annually with all three churches in our family of churches where we just love and serve our community. We partner with several organizations throughout our community to love and bless those in our midst. Last year, we partnered with six different organizations uh, in town, and we gave over, uh, it right, actually right around 3,600 volunteer hours is what we put in. Uh, we are looking to up that this year. We're going to partner with not six, but seven organizations, and we're hoping to have a whole slew of more volunteers. And really, our aim in this is not just that we do this one thing for this one weekend, but rather that this weekend serves as a catalyst for our relationships with these folks for the coming year. And so I just wanted to put that out there for you, uh, that if you haven't already signed up for Serve the City Weekend, we would love for you to do that. You can do so really easily at stcweekend.com. It is right there. All the info about our partnerships and what you'll be doing and how to sign up can be found there. So head on over that way to sign up if you will. Now, let's get down into Matthew chapter 2. So we find ourselves this morning uh, in one of those passages uh, where regardless of whether or not you grew up in or around the church, you're probably really, really familiar with it. It's the story of King Herod and the wise men searching for Jesus. Uh, It is the quintessential nativity set story, so chances are you have a neighbor who has the drama of these verses proudly displayed on their lawn somewhere. You didn't even know they got down with Jesus like that, but they've got the nativity set sitting in their uh, yard in my house. We have two or three of these things in our den alone. We probably have four or five, you know, elsewhere. Like they're just sort of all over the place. But here's the deal. We have a tendency with stories like this and a lot of the other Christmas stories as well to turn them into what I would call these little precious moments stories. Anybody with me? Precious moments. Am I dating myself? That's fine. 
That's totally fine. Precious moments are these like cute little children's stories that we tell our kids before they go to bed. That's what we tend to do with the Christmas narrative and specifically with this story. And to be clear, I'm not mad at us for that. To be honest with you, I'm not mad at us for that at all. My family does it too. Recently, we started working our way through a children's adaptation of this story that's also paired with the song Silent Night. Uh, and, And on every page, I mean, it's just page after page of all these calm and peaceful looking depictions of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and these sage-like wise men who are traveling to meet this child and these animals, these cute fluffy barn animals that are all just snuggled up to Jesus. And then at the end of it, you know, uh, the way our little adaptation encourages the reader to sing the song Silent Night, you know, with the animals or whatever as we're finishing things up. And we always hit that line where that goes, uh, all is calm and all all is bright. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I cringe every time we get there because all I can think is this song sits on a throne of lies. Like what childbirth have you ever been to that was calm and bright? Loud and horrifying are what I remember, right? Like it's just, this is not, this is not how the whole thing went down. But the point is like, we pretty these stories up. That's all I'm trying to say. We, we pretty these stories up. And the truth about this text is that this text is about how people respond to Jesus. It's not actually a story about some nice old guys bringing gifts to a baby. It's actually a story about genocide. Merry Christmas. Let's get in. (laughs) Matthew chapter two. Now, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. All right, so I hate to mess up your nativity sets, but the wise men weren't actually there when Jesus was born. They started traveling when Jesus was born and didn't get there till several months to a year or two years later. Uh, In my house, I've actually started moving the wise men away from the manger sets, like putting them in random places throughout the home. Lauren loves it. Oh, she really loves it. She doesn't roll her eyes at all. Uh, Also, for what it's worth, uh, (laughs) for what it's worth, we always assume that there were just three wise men, which is probably based on the fact that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the text actually never says that there were just three. In fact, a school of traveling astrologers like this would likely have included at least a dozen or so. This was a caravan. Most likely it included these guys, their wives, their kids, a bunch of animals, livestock, servants, the whole nine yards. Plus it says in verse three that they troubled the whole city. And this is just conjecture, but for what it's worth, I don't think three dudes on camelback are going to disrupt a whole city. Now a caravan, on the other hand, that might actually get some people going. But nonetheless, these wise men, sometimes called magi, they were astrologers. But when I say that, I don't want you to think that they were these kooky mystics writing horoscopes for Reader's Digest. That was not That was not the space that they operated in. That's not what we're talking about here. During this time period, what this meant was that most likely they were a part of the priestly ruling class from Persia. They were uh, were educated men who likely specialized in the study of ancient writings and sacred religious texts and things like astrology. They were men with power and authority. They were likely men with great wealth and a good measure 
of prestige from where they come from. And so, uh, also, this is kind of a side note. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but I know I have. Like, how exactly did this, these guys get this information about the king of the Jews and this star they should follow and all these kinds of things? Well, short answer is God showed them, God showed them but to theorize just a little bit further, I think it's important to note where these guys came from. When it says they came from the east, and when it indicates who they were, they were likely from Persia. And if you remember your history of Israel, you know that Persia was where many of the Jews were actually sent into exile, right? And we know from the book of Daniel, the very same Daniel who prophesied about the Messiah that we talked about in week one of this series, uh, we know that from that book, some of the greatest men of God were kept in this class of wise men in Persia. Men you may be familiar with, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, the guys from the lion's den and the flaming furnace fame. And so all that to say, it's entirely likely that due to the exile of Israel, these men were familiar with the writings of Moses, if not the writings of Daniel and the other prophets. And through their study, they pieced together these things from God's word. Now, to be fair, that is just a theory, but I think it makes a lot of sense for what it's worth. It, it connects a lot of dots for me. But in any case, these important men show up to King Herod's doorstep and they ask, Ah, yes, King Herod, we are here to see the king of the Jews. Where might we find him? And I don't know what you know about royalty, all right? But when you roll up to the palace and ask the king, Hey, king, where's the real king? That doesn't sit too well with the guy sitting on the throne. In fact, that might start sending off all kinds of alarm bells for him. So what do you think Herod's response is going to be? Let's look down into verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled has to be one of the greatest understatements of the Bible, all right? Like, let me show you what I mean. History tells us that Herod was an unusually paranoid, selfish, and violent ruler. He was a man driven to, by, from his very core by a personal ambition and desires for wealth and power. Uh, so, for example, the common tax to Herod at this time was around 50%, and this was on top of all your taxes paid to Caesar and to Rome. Historians say it totaled upwards of 75% of somebody's household income, which essentially brought the entire nation of Israel to economic ruin. Once, when he was short on money, he found 45 of the wealthiest citizens and executed them and then took their estates. Not exactly a Robin Hood type guy, for what it's worth. Additionally, he was incredibly insecure about losing his power. When he came into power, the first thing he did was slaughter everybody from the previous dynasty. At one point in his life, he executed half of the Sanhedrin, which was 70 priests and elders who were, in a sense, the religious supreme court for Israel. And he did it because they were making things difficult for him and giving him trouble. One time in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 court nobles killed. He killed three of his own sons because he thought they were conspiring to take his throne. And he even had his wife killed too because he thought she was conspiring against him. And you thought your marriage had problems, right? He's a bad, bad dude. All in all, he was not great. He was chiefly concerned with himself and making sure that he stayed on top and that his life went the way he wanted it to go. So what does Herod do when he finds out this news? Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of, them, uh, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And all God's people collectively said, yeah, right. And we quickly, we quickly learn as much. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the wise men leave and they keep following the star to the place where Jesus was. And we're going to take a look at what they do when they get there in a few minutes. But let's jump down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So once again, an angel of the Lord intervenes into Jesus' story and says to these wise men and Joseph, Herod has no intentions of worshiping Jesus. He's going to attempt to kill him. And that's exactly what he tries to do. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and or under, according to the time he had ascertained by, from the wise men. And so in a fit of rage, what happens here is this brutal king slaughters all of the children under, or all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem, just to make sure he had taken out the would-be king. From what we know of the, about populations of small towns like this or like Bethlehem at this time, this was probably in the ballpark of 20 to 30 children. Regrettably, while we read this and we find it absolutely shocking, the reality of it is, is that atrocities like this were commonplace in Herod's reign to the point where this one doesn't even bear other historical mention. But as you can imagine, this would be utterly devastating for this community, for any community or for any parent. Having your child taken from you and murdered before your eyes would be devastating. And if not for the angel's warning, Jesus too would have been a victim of Herod's genocidal megalomania. So yeah, not really a bedtime story here. It's not what this is. Now, it's important to remember that every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had enormous amounts of material to draw on to tell their biographies of Jesus's life. There are lots of stories from Jesus's life that they could have included. In fact, John says, uh, John says that there were so many things that Jesus said and did that if every one of them were to be written down, the world wouldn't have enough room for all the books that could be written. It's hyperbole, but you get the idea. The point, however, is that the gospel writers are selective. When they chose to write what they wrote, they chose it with an intention and with a purpose. They chose to tell us, when they chose to tell us something about Jesus' life, they always did it for at least two reasons. First was because it actually happened, and the second was to tell us something very important. They chose to record it because it reveals something to us about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what we are intended to learn from it. And so my question for us this morning is, why does Matthew... Pick the one of a mad king and foreign dignitaries searching for Jesus. Why does he choose to include this story in Jesus' origin story? And here's the answer I want to submit for you today. That Jesus always, 
No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, Jesus always provokes a response. Always. In fact, Jesus is the most divisive person that you and I will ever encounter. It's true. And I know that might be hard to believe here in the Bible Belt. Like, we generally have, like, neutral to positive feelings about Jesus. We have no real issues with mangers getting put up in our front yards. And generally speaking, around here, if we tell somebody Merry Christmas or put it on a giant billboard on the interstate, there's not going to be that much of a public outcry. But Jesus is divisive to us just the same. For example, while we tend to love the Jesus of Christmas, the baby who's come to bring joy and peace to the world, the moment we start, we actually start talking about the teachings of Jesus or practicing the way of Jesus, like actually doing the things that Jesus teaches us to do, like dying to yourself, giving your money and your possessions away, confessing your sin regularly to others, loving your enemies, or at least loving the person who's really difficult to love near you, or heaven forbid, we start talking about Jesus's sexual ethics, well, then we get a little more uncomfortable, right? We get a little more squirmy in our seat. And to be fair, I know some of us are on the other end of the spectrum. Like you tend to think of Jesus as a good moral teacher, except maybe some of the stuff that he said about sex. But you're down with all the positive things he said about loving your neighbor and not succumbing to the powers that be. So yes, absolutely, we should give our stuff away. And yes, we should open up our homes to the foreigner and the outcast. But when you start to talk about who Jesus actually said he was, well, then it becomes a different story, right? When it comes to the fact that he said he was literally God incarnate and that he is the only avenue to salvation. Well, now hold up. Let's not be so narrow-minded here, Jesus. Let's, let's take a little bit of a broader perspective. And for what it's worth, just to be honest with you, like I see this on a weekly basis with us. It's not all that dark in here, all right? Like I, I can actually see you. I see how you respond to the things that Jesus says, Right? When I start talking about loving difficult people and living simply or living generously, about half the room is usually smiling and the other half is squirming. And then when I start talking about sex and submitting to God's authority, it flips. The other half is now squirming and the, and the other half is smiling. And look, I'm that way too. Like, I'm not, I'm not just saying that, you know, to point my finger at you. Like, I'm that way too. Like, there are things about Jesus that make me uncomfortable, that ruffle my feathers. But the truth is, is that this has always been the case for Jesus. This has always been the case. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus makes people uncomfortable no matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter your culture, no matter where you come from. Jesus has always been divisive. He has divided families, cultures, and even whole civilizations. And while it's easy for us to forget that in the throes of this Christmas season where we're just going from one tacky Christmas sweater party to another, the Christmas story, and this one particularly, reminds us that Jesus is divisive. And the dividing line and the dividing line has been and always will be. Which kingdom are you going to live for? His or yours? Here's what I mean. Notice that it's not the teaching of Jesus that makes him divisive to Herod. It is not Jesus's teaching that ruffles Herod's feathers. Jesus is a baby at this point. It's not merely his teaching that makes him divisive. It's his existence. Here's the thing. It is impossible to be neutral about the Christmas story. 
Because if the Christmas story is true, if the Son of God really came to earth as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago, then that means that the true king of the cosmos is Jesus. And if he's the true king, then guess who isn't? Me. You. Us. If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. And who can be neutral about a claim that, if true, means that you know or you are no longer king of your domain? It's a bold assertion. And at the end of the day, there are only two responses a person can have to this claim. And here it is an example, albeit a really extreme example, of one of them. We'll call this response the response of elimination. In ancient times, Herod's response was actually a very normal thing for kings to do, for what it's worth. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm not saying it was a righteous thing. But it was a very normal thing for kings to do in order to protect their throne and their way of life. Kings don't want anyone else vying for their throne. When a new king would rise to power, the first thing that a new king would do would be to wipe out the old dynasty to prevent an uprising. During their rule, whenever they felt any threat to their way of life, any threat to how they operate, any opposition to their wealth, comfort, power, approval, control, whatever it may be, they would attack it. And we see this displayed throughout Herod's life in history. In essence, if there was ever ultimately a threat to his happiness or the life he had grown accustomed to, the logical response was, take it out. Absolutely take it out. And for Herod, Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. So his only option was elimination. And here's the thing. Jesus is a threat to your kingdom too. Jesus is a threat to your kingdom too. In every human heart, there is a little king that wants to rule and is threatened by anything that may compromise its own omnipotence and sovereignty. This is why when someone challenges us on something, perhaps how we spend our time, Our knee-jerk reaction is never, oh, you know what? I've never thought of it that way. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. No. 99.9% of the time when someone says, hey, maybe you shouldn't be spending so much time watching TV and instead, I don't know, talk to your wife. We respond with, well, you know what? Maybe you should stop spending so much time thinking about how much time I'm spending watching TV instead of talking to my wife, all right? Now, (laughs) Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate that. (laughs) Maybe you're not as confrontational as Patrick and I are, all right? Like, maybe that's not your speed. Maybe you'll you'll just respond back, well, look, I've had a hard day. Uh, Work's been really crazy, and I've just needed a little bit of me time or whatever. You might not be that overt, but deep down in your soul, there is this tinge of pride that says, who are you to infringe on my domain? Who are you to tell me what I ought and ought not be doing? And most of the time, what happens when somebody brings that up to us, what do we do? We just cut them out. We stop responding to the texts. We aren't as enthused to go hang out with them. We just sort of eliminate them from our lives. And the reality of it is, is that Jesus is a greater threat to those things in our lives than anyone else. He's a threat to how we think about our wealth. 
He's a threat to our comfort, a threat to our power, a threat to our control, a threat to our in-the-moment happiness or pleasure, a threat to the life we've grown accustomed to. And if our highest aim in life is to make our life a bit better day by day, well, then Jesus is absolutely going to be a threat to that as well. And And while most of us have significantly less power than Herod did, and we will likely never use it to do such egregious evil as Herod did, what we will do is seek to eliminate Jesus from our lives just the same. Here's how I think it shows up with us. We're okay with Jesus up to a point. We're okay with Jesus up to a point. Okay with Jesus up to the point where what I really want or believe I need is threatened. And the moment that thing gets threatened, well, then that's the moment that I try to eliminate him. That's the moment that I squirm or I try to talk my way around it. I attempt to make it seem like Jesus doesn't really mean what he seems to mean. Or I walk away. I walk away from Christian community or I walk away from Jesus altogether or I just get incredibly defensive and build barriers between myself, him, and them. So I'm great with Jesus and I want to be identified with Jesus up to the point where I have to choose to follow and trust him with my singleness or my sexuality. Up to that point. What if it means I never get married? What if it means my desires go unmet? Sorry, Jesus, that just won't do. So I'm great with Jesus up to the point where he calls me to deny myself and love someone that I have no desire to love. I'm sorry, Jesus, but somebody needed to teach you about boundaries. So I'm great with Jesus up to the point where following him and discipling the family he has given me means that my kids aren't going to get to play every sport and they're not going to get to go to every dance recital. Sorry, Jesus, my kids come first. So I'm great with Jesus up until the point that he has anything at all to say about how I spend my time or how I spend my money or who I should or should not be sleeping with or who I need to be reconciled with or what I need to repent of or what my family should do. Well, then, Jesus, I'll still post about you on Instagram, and I promise it will look real mature and it will be really encouraging to my three followers. I promise. But make no mistake, my life is still my kingdom. And I might not be slaughtering babies, but it is elimination of a king just the same. So that's one type of response. But there's another. Let's look back at the verses we skipped and notice the contrast. This is back in verse 9. After listening to the king, they, referring to the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love this phrase, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Greek is actually super bumpy, okay? It doesn't read as smooth as we're putting it out here in English. It reads more literally like rejoiced with mega great joy. I just, I find that wonderful. I mean, Imagine these wise men, right, traveling for days and days and days on end in the middle of the day with a blistering desert sun on your back into the cold, frigid, lonely nights. And after all those miles are behind you, you finally see it, the star over where Jesus was. And finally, you rejoice with mega great joy. You found him. He's here. You are unbelievably unbelievably pumped. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, 
gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here is the opposite response of Herod. Herod attempted to eliminate the threat of a rival king, but the wise men bowed down and worshiped. These wise men, men with power, prestige, and kingdoms of their own, give their time and energy to seek the Christ child. They gave up months to years of their life to find him. They gave up the most costly things for him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were not souvenirs from the airport gift shop, okay? These were gifts fitting for a king. And when they arrive, they worship. They fall on their faces and praise God. They fall on their faces and worship a baby. I mean, consider how bizarre that is, right? Like, when is the last time you busted out in praise visiting your friend's newborn? You don't. But why did they do this? Why did the wise men respond in this way? I think the answer is actually fairly simple. Because they know they had found something better. They know they had found something better. The wise men were wise enough to know that they weren't the king their lives needed, but this Jesus was. That what they needed, what the world needed, wasn't their rule and reign, but Jesus's rule and reign. They know they found something worth more. They found something that can do more for them than any of their little kingdoms ever could. Something better than momentary pleasure. Something better than money in their bank account. Something better than improving their lives one day at a time. Something, or rather, someone who provides mega great joy. And the chief lie that we believe, the lie that Herod believed, the lie that moves us to choose our own kingdoms over Jesus' time and time again, is that if Jesus is king, then ultimately he's a threat to our joy. That's the lie we believe. That's what prompts us to choose our own way over his. The point at which we stop being okay with Jesus is the point at which we believe our joy is in jeopardy. It's not just that we fear what his kingship will mean for the practicalities of our lives, but that trusting and following him will actually threaten our happiness. That it'll actually threaten the goodness of our life or our joy within it. But friends, what I want to submit for you today is that nothing could actually be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Joy is precisely what Jesus came to give us. It is what he came for. Joy is precisely what his kingdom is all about. I mean, consider the message of the angels to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth that you heard Brandon talk about earlier. This is from Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The news the angels have come to proclaim is joy for everyone. The gospel is good news of great joy. Or what Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, he said the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or again, in John 15, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our joy is what Jesus is after. Perhaps my favorite example of this is from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus rolls up into the synagogue one Sabbath, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. This is in Luke 4, verses 18 through 21. So he opens the scroll and he finds a spot in Isaiah, and this is what it reads. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what you have to keep in mind in this text is Jesus is teaching in an oral culture. And so what would often happen is, is most of the Jews at this time would have at least been familiar with the entire passage this text is coming from, if not had the whole uh, book of Isaiah memorized. And so when he's reading from this text, which is Isaiah 61, by the way, it's sending alarm bells off in their minds. They're remembering the verses that come after it. And the next two verses go like this. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness or the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then back in Luke in verse 20, he said, it says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He has come to bring us joy This is what Jesus came to do, to give you mega great joy. A joy that is grounded not in your current circumstances, that is not primarily grounded in your feelings, but in the unshakable promise of Jesus for you. A joy that says, no matter what, I know that my eternity is secure. I know that my sins are as far removed from me as the east is from the west. That I am forever his and nothing can change that. And by a life of joy, he does not mean a life marked by everything going your way as though you will never have any hardships or that life won't ever be difficult. But rather that even when things are dark, That even when things feel like they are ripping you apart, you've got something to stand on. And that's the presence and promises of God over you. That is what Jesus has come to bring you. That is joy. That even when you're beat up, even when you're hurting, even when nothing is going the way that you want it to, you have a God who cares for you and your future is eternally secure. That is joy. That is what we're after. But the reality of it is, is that kind of security, that kind of joy, a life marked by that kind of contentment and peace and happiness is found in his kingdom, not in our own. It is found when Jesus is king, not when you or I are. There is one place that the kingdom of you leads, and it's the exact place that Herod's kingdom led to, to a life marked by paranoia and anxiety and defensiveness, and hostility, distraction, and the elimination of anything challenging. And as the psalmist writes in Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The end result of seeking our own way will always be sorrow in this life and in the one to come. And listen, if you want to know how I don't... how. If you want to know how I know we don't have this kind of joy and we are desperately looking for it, I could give you tons of examples, tons of examples. I'll just give you one, though. Studies show we spend eight hours a day consuming entertainment in, in the media. Eight hours a day glued to a screen, whether that be TV, internet, or social media. We spend one third of our life consumed with entertainment. And what that tells me is it tells me we are doping ourselves because we want joy. 
We want relief, and we are numbing trying to find anything that could hopefully give us that little bit of a spark of something better than what we are currently experiencing. But to be a person marked by joy is only going to happen when we let Jesus be king instead of us. When we let Jesus be the one who calls the shots, even when and especially when he makes us uncomfortable. In those moments where you experience discomfort at the commands of Jesus, you have a choice in that moment. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to submit to his kingship or are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to trust that he knows better than you do? Are you going to trust that he is more for your joy than you are and what he says is only for you good? Are you going to choose your way of doing things or Jesus? Are you going to reject him or are you going to worship him? Personally, I love the way that C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Joy is not found in circumstances like the lie tempts us to believe. Just ask Tom Brady or Jim Carrey or any of the litany of others who, who have everything we have ever dreamed of. Joy is not found there. Joy is found in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And this is exactly what following Jesus is all about. Giving up our kingdoms for someone better. That's what worship is, honestly. What worship truly is, is my life in your hands, complete and total surrender. It's saying there is no point at which I am not going to be with Jesus. It's not about my time. It's not about my relationships. It's not about my money or my family. It's about you, Jesus. You get it all. So help me yield myself to what you want. Help me open up my hands more and more because I know that ultimately you are for my good. And you might be asking, well, how can I be confident that that's the case? Seems like a bold ask. I'm going to need some assurances here to let go of the things I want and what I believe is going to make me happy. How can I be confident that joy is actually found in King Jesus and not in King me? How can I know that Jesus is actually for these things? How can I know that one day with Jesus is better than 10,000 elsewhere? Well, because whereas Herod was a king who sought to take the lives of any threat to his kingdom, Jesus is one who gives his life for the threats to his. He gave his life for you. He laid his kingdom down. He laid his kingship down for you to become a greater king, to become the king we need through his life, death, and resurrection. He is a good king come to bring joy. And if you want it, it is there for the taking. All you have to do in the language of the New Testament is repent and believe. And I know those are some words that have lost their luster, in my opinion, in the English language, but all they really mean are to change your mind or to change your way of thinking, which leads to a changing of ways and trust. That's all it is. Repent is changing your way of thinking, and believe means trust. And the invitation to you this morning is an invitation to mega great joy. 
to change how you think your joy is going to be found, to change your ways of pursuing it at the hands of your own kingdom, to stop attempting to eliminate Jesus' rule in your life and to instead trust him with it. Trust that his ways are better than yours. Trust that he and he alone heals, forgives, and delivers life and joy to all who would seek it in him. That's for you this morning, your joy. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you uh, that you are a better king than we are, that you are a king who laid his life down for us. Whereas we uh, are a people who are often hostile to you, uh, where we are a people who often want to go our own way and reject you or only keep you around to kind of sprinkle some Holy Spirit dust in our lives and make things go well. God, that we reject you at every turn. You are a God who shows incredibly great grace to us, and that is a sincere cause of joy for us. God, I just pray that you would help us to recognize the areas of our own lives where we are okay with you up until a point. Areas of our own lives where we believe that you are not for our good and that joy is not going to be found in following you and that, God, you would lead us to repent there, that you would change our ways of thinking and change our ways of pursuing these things to come to a place where we put our full trust in you and what you say, and what you want for us, and what you have for us, God, because we know in you is where joy and life are going to be found. And God, I know at the end of the day, this is something that we need your spirit to open our eyes to, and so I just pray that you would do it. Help us to see how every other thing that we chase for happiness is going to fail, that it's not going to hold up, and at the end of the day, our souls need something that is eternally secure, and that's, that's not any trinket or person that is going to fade away here, on this wor- here in this world, but it is you and you alone. And so we just need your spirit to open our eyes to that reality. And I pray that you would. Just ask that you would do that even now in us, God. If for the first time or the thousandth time, bring us back to yourself. And we thank you so much for your love and your mercy to us. And it's in your name that we pray.